Back in 2014, a study found that 80% of Americans believed in life after death. And what's surprising about that figure is that that number is actually up from previous surveys over time. I think the highest number before that was 76% of Americans. And now, back in 2014 at least, 80% of Americans said they believed in life after death. But what's really surprising about that figure is fewer of those people actually believe in God. And so people have some conflicting ideas about what happens after you die. Some people maybe hope that something good happens after you die, but they don't really know. I think probably every person who's ever lived has at least thought about the question, what happens after I die? What, what becomes of me? Does anything become of me? Or is my life over at that point? And the truth of the matter is that although 80% of Americans say they believe in life after death, that means 20% of Americans don't or they're not sure. And that's just Americans. Around the world, the figures are probably even different. There are probably more people who either say, I don't believe in life after death, or I don't know what happens after death. One way or another, we've probably all thought about this. We probably all have at least some kind of a gut opinion, or a gut instinct, or a feeling, or at least a hope about what happens to a person after that person dies. But the truth of the matter is that not everyone believes in life after death. In fact, some people are skeptical about the concept of life after death. Some people are skeptical about whether or not it's true that a person's life continues after their life on this earth ends in death. Now, of course, people who don't believe in God fit in this category. People who don't believe in God, I don't know how they can believe in life after death. And some do. Some people believe in reincarnation, which is a form of life after death, even though they don't believe in God. But the truth of the matter is, people who are likely to say they don't believe in God are probably also likely to think there's nothing that happens to us after we die. And this concept is more accepted in our society than ever before. And it's embodied, perhaps, in the opinion of Stephen Hawking. Stephen Hawking was the British physicist who was diagnosed with ALS at age 21 and died last year on March 14th of 2018 at age 76. When he was asked about the concept of life after death in an interview, he said this, I have lived with the prospect of an early death for the last 49 years. I'm not afraid of death but I'm in no hurry to die. I have so much I want to do first. Now here's his belief about, or it was his belief about life after death. He said, I regard the brain as a computer which will stop working when its components fail. There is no heaven or afterlife for broken down computers. That is a fairy story for people afraid of the dark. Now, that's a very raw and, in many ways, insulting way to put it. But it's not an uncommon opinion, especially in our world. As more and more people move away from the idea that God exists, more and more of them think 
that when, they're, when they die, their existence ends, that their consciousness ceases, that there is nothing that can truly be regarded as life after death, especially if they don't believe in God. And so some people are skeptical about life after death, especially people who don't believe in God, but they're not the only ones. There are some people who believe in God, but don't, don't believe in life after death. Some religious people even are skeptical about the concept of life after death too. And here in our passage this morning, Luke chapter 20, we meet some of them. When we read together in Luke chapter 20, verse 27, some of the Sadducees who say there is no resurrection came to Jesus with a question. We're introduced to a body of people, a group of people who believed in God. And they believed that God was a real personal being. They believed that God was creator. And they believed that God spoke to humanity. And yet they believed that when they died, that was it. Life is over. And their unbelief in the afterlife is really embodied in the fact that they did not believe in a resurrection. Now, I suppose it's possible to think, in fact, I'm sure there are people who think this, that there may be no resurrection, that is, no bodies that come back to life, and yet there might be life after death. In other words, a person might exist as a spirit being after they die, even if there's no resurrection. But for the Sadducees, saying that there was no resurrection was exactly the same as saying there's no life after death. They believed that when a person dies, that person's existence ended. And so that's what Luke is telling us in verse 27 when it says, some of the Sadducees who say there is no resurrection, he's telling us that Jesus is being confronted by a group of religious people who don't believe in the afterlife, who don't believe that there is anything such as life after death. Now let me talk about these Sadducees for a moment. These are, this is a Jewish group. During the times in which Jesus lived, there were many different sects of Judaism. The Pharisees are the group that we are probably the most familiar with. They were the most antagonistic to Jesus over the course of his life and ministry. And in many ways, they were the most influential group. They were a group of people who believed in the entirety of the Old Testament. And even though they didn't control the temple or the temple system, they did control the synagogues, the, the local um, places where people met for prayer and for teaching on the Sabbath day. And so therefore, their views were, were popular because they controlled a lot of the teaching that was going on in Israel. The Sadducees were another one of these Jewish sects. And they are, in many ways, the opponents of the Pharisees. They did not believe in the entirety of the Old Testament as God's revelation. In fact, they only believed the first five books of the Old Testament were given from God. The books of Moses. They thought that was the entirety of God's revelation to humanity. And so they believed in God, and they believed in the Old Testament law, and that means they believed in the tabernacle slash temple system, but that's it. If it wasn't in the five books of Moses, then to the Sadducees, it wasn't necessarily true. And a lot of the things the Pharisees pulled out of the Old Testament as implications, the Sadducees rejected. Now, the Sadducees controlled the temple. They were the ones who were in charge of the worship of God's people in terms of bringing offerings and sacrifices to the Lord. They were in charge of the worship that went on in the temple. And remember, this is where Jesus is at this point. 
In chapter 19, Jesus has done his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. This is the final week of his life on this earth. And although he comes to uh, Jerusalem presenting himself as a king and begins to exert the power that a king should exert and should have, he is opposed by many groups, one of which is the Sadducees. Jesus is doing all this teaching in the temple, and you remember he cleansed the temple of the people who were exchanging monies. That was hitting the Sadducees right in the pocketbook. And so the Pharisees didn't like Jesus for their own reasons, and the Sadducees don't like him either. In the previous passage that we looked at about paying taxes to Caesar, the Pharisees and others came to Jesus, and they tried to get him in trouble politically. Now the Sadducees are coming to Jesus, and they're trying to undermine the things that he teaches. They're trying to demonstrate that he is not a teacher who should be followed. And they do it with this question that we read together in verse 28. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first one married a woman and died childless. The second and then the third married her. And in the same way, the seven died, leaving no children. Finally, the woman died too. Now then at the resurrection, whose wife will she be since the seven were married to her? This question that the Sadducees bring to Jesus is not a genuine question. It's a question that comes out of skepticism. It's a question that was designed to, in their, to um, reveal what was in their minds the ridiculousness of the concept of life after death. They tried to come up with a situation that they agreed with and that Jesus would agree with and try to show that it was ridiculous that Someone would come back to life, and how would they deal with this dilemma that the Sadducees pose? And so the Sadducees are a Jewish group that believed in God, but not in life after death. And so they, ex they express their skepticism in this question that they brought to Jesus. Now let's get into the question a little bit, because you need to understand the Old Testament law in order to understand the question. In 28, verse 28, that is, the Sadducees phrased the question by saying, Moses wrote for us. And remember, I told you that they only believed the first five books of the Old Testament were God's word, the books of Moses. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That's all they thought the scriptures embodied. And so if they're going to challenge Jesus about his beliefs, that's where they're going to go, because that's the common ground that they have. Jesus and the Pharisees and everybody else believed in the, more than these five books. They believed in the 39 books of the Old Testament as the Word of God. But they all believed that the first five books were part of the Word of God. And so that's where the Sadducees go for their question. Moses wrote for us, they say in verse 28, that if a man's, brother's, if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow. The man's brother, that is, must marry the widow. Now, we need to understand, in the last part of that verse, in uh, verse 28, says, and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, you need to understand that in Judaism, the promised land was really, really important to their national identity and to their faith. And not just keeping the promised land that God had given, but God had apportioned the promised land by tribe. And then each tribe had apportioned the promised lands to the various clans and families that were part of that tribe. 
And because this was God's land, because it was God's gift to the people, it was really important to the people to keep the land in the family. You do not want your land to pass into somebody else's family. And so having uh, a, a firstborn son to be the heir, to maintain the family name, and to keep the family land and the family was really, really important to all the people of God, no matter what tribe they belonged to and no matter what area they had. Moses taught what is called leveret marriage. That's what's being described in this passage. Which is, if the firstborn son receives the land from his father, and he marries a woman, he is supposed to have a firstborn son who can continue the family tradition. But what if he dies and doesn't have a firstborn son? Well, Moses' law said, then his brother is supposed to marry his widow, and have a son with her. And that son is not the son of brother number two. He is, legally speaking, regarded as the son of older brother, of brother number one. Okay? And so that's what's being described in this passage. The Sadducees' question is, what if a man dies and his brother marries his widow and he doesn't have a child with her either, and then the third brother doesn't have a child with her after he marries her, and then the fourth brother, and so on and so on and so on until we get down to lucky number seven. And he also dies without leaving an heir for his older brother. This would be a very disgraceful situation in Israel because the land then would pass into somebody else's hands. It would, it would pass to a, a, a cousin or um, an in-law or something. And so this is not a good situation that anyone in Israel would want. But the, the Sadducees are interested in what happens after death here. They're, they're, they're trying to show that the idea that there is life after death is kind of ridiculous because they, they present this question about, well, what happens in the afterlife after um, all of these people are raised from the dead? Who belongs to who? What's, what's the situation regarding all this? That's what the question is designed to ask. And the point is to try to create a ridiculous scenario that also makes resurrection look pretty ridiculous. This is what skeptics do with the revelation of God. They try to come up with a scenario that seems absurd in order to make all of God's revelation absurd. In our days, you're more likely to encounter a question such as, how many angels can dance on the head of a pin? Or a worse one, or, you know, it's not worse, it's... The people who say it think it's more damning. It isn't. But can God create a rock so big that he can't lift it? Okay, these are absurd ways of trying to pillory the truth of God and make it sound crazy so that you'll stop believing in it. And that's what the Sadducees are after. They don't really care whose wife she'll belong to uh, in the resurrection. What they want to do is show Jesus or demonstrate to Jesus that the concept of, of the resurrection is ridiculous. All right, so that's the situation. Some people in this world are skeptical about life after death, including sometimes religious people. Now, how's Jesus going to respond to this? Well, the answer is Jesus is going to affirm that life after death exists. He is going to explain clearly what the reality of life after death is. That's what we see in the rest of this passage. We see Jesus picking up the challenge posed by the Sadducees and showing why it's not difficult at all, and then using it as an opportunity to teach about what the afterlife holds. 
And so let's look at Jesus' answer beginning in verse 34, where the Scripture says, Jesus replied, The people of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy of taking part in the age to come and in the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor, uh, will neither marry nor be given in marriage, and they can no longer die, for they are like the angels. They are God's children since they are children of the resurrection. This is the answer of Christ. And his answer not only um, makes the question of the Sadducees go away, but it's an opportunity for him to do some teaching about the nature of life after death. It's a way for him to give us some more information about a question we've all thought about. What is life after death like? What should I expect after my life ends and after, even after we're raised from the dead? What is all that going to be like? Well, Jesus doesn't tell us in detail, but he does give us some important information. And that's what's going on in this passage. The first thing Jesus tells us is this, that life after death is substantially different than this life. That's the problem with the, Pharisee, with the Sadducees' question. The Sadducees' question assumes that after the dead are raised, life goes on the way it was. And if you can think about it this way, if someone was, uh, went, went into the hospital for surgery, okay, and they were knocked out for a period of time, or let's say they even went into a coma, all right, and so time passes, things change, things go on, and they're unaware of it. They're, it's, you know, they, they have no consciousness whatsoever. And then they emerge from the coma. Whatever they're in the hospital for gets cured, and they get released from the hospital. What changes about them? Not their name. Not the place that they live. Not their spouse. Nothing changes about a person just because they go unconscious for a time. The Sadducees assume that death is sort of like that. In fact, they assume that it's exactly like that. That when you die, your consciousness would end for a period of time, thousands of years, as we now know. And then when you're raised from the dead, if, if see, remember, they don't believe in the resurrection from the dead, so they're trying to show that this is absurd. They're trying to say, well, you come back to your life the way you were. You have the same body, now raised. You have the same name. What about all these connections that you had? Which one of these uh, women, which one of these men was the one woman married to? And their assumption, of course, too, is that is one of monogamy, that she doesn't actually have seven husbands anymore, that only one of them can be her legitimate husband. Now, if, say, um, husband number five had had a child with her, all right, an heir who could um, keep the family name going, he would be accounted, I guess, as her genuine husband. He's the one who actually gave her a child. And so it could be either the first one or the last one or the one that gave her a, ch a child. But the question is absurd because it fundamentally misunderstands the nature of the resurrection. Jesus is trying to tell us that life after death is in some ways similar to life on this earth, but in many ways it's substantially different. And he says that in verse 34 by saying this, the people of this age marry and are given in marriage. Jesus is trying to emphasize that marriage is something God created for this time, for this age, for the times in which we live. But then he goes on to contrast that in verse 35 
when he says, but those who are considered worthy of taking part in the age to come and in the resurrection from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage. Now notice Jesus puts some things together here. He says, those who take part in the age to come and in the resurrection. Now remember I told you the, Pharisees, the Sadducees don't believe in either one of these things. And so they use the resurrection as a um, way to try to make a, a ridiculous scenario to try to cause all kinds of disbelief. Jesus affirms both the fact that there is life after death and that there will be a, a bodily resurrection. So Jesus pushes them together because they belong together. And Jesus says that age, the age after this one, the time of your life after you die, and then after Jesus comes and resurrects you from the dead, both of those are going to be substantially different than the times in which you live now. One of those differences, of course, regard, is, with, with, is with regard to marriage. The future of life after death does not involve marriage. That's what Jesus clearly says when he says in verse 35, but those who are considered worthy of taking part in the age to come and in the resurrection from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage. Now, what he's saying to us is this. You're not going to get married in the afterlife. And if you're a woman, you won't be given in marriage. That's the point, okay? But underneath all of this is saying your marriage will not continue. And so it's an irrelevant question to say which of the, which of the seven men that this one woman was married to will actually be her husband in the day to come. Jesus is saying marriage is for this life. Marriage has a purpose. It's a God-created and God-ordained purpose. But its purpose ends when this age ends. And so marriage is one of the things that does not endure into eternal life. People don't get married, and they are not in a state of marriage in the life to come. That is the point that Jesus is saying. And so this is one of the differences between the afterlife and the life that we live now. The life that we live now is different from the afterlife because marriage does not exist after death. But it's also different in another way, and Jesus puts this in, because it's important. And it was something that the Sadducees should have picked up on and should have caused them great concern. Because the second way in which Jesus says that life after death is substantially different from this life is that it's different because not everyone who is alive now will receive life after death. And we see that in verse 35 where he says this, but those who are considered worthy of taking part in the age to come. Jesus throws that in there to confront the false notions of not only the Sadducees, but also the Pharisees and many others. You see, they assume that because I'm alive now, I'll be in the afterlife. I'll make it into the afterlife, necessarily. That somehow, if there is a resurrection from the dead, that everyone will be raised and everyone will continue in the afterlife. Now, it is true that the Bible says all the dead will be raised to life. But after that resurrection, the Bible says there's a day of judgment. And the vast majority of humanity on the day of judgment will be assigned to what is called the second death. That is, their existence will continue in a sense, but it will continue under the punishment of God. And so they will not have a life that's anything like the life that they have now. And when Jesus says in verse 35, those who are considered worthy of taking part in the age to come, he is saying there are many 
in this world, who aren't going to be in the next age. They aren't going to enjoy anything really like life after death. They'll know death after death, the eternal condemnation of God. And so one thing that's different is that marriage doesn't exist in the, in the age to come, but also many people who live in this life, who live in this world, also will not exist in the age to come in anything that can be considered life. And so Jesus is trying to tell us that life after death is substantially different than this life. And it's something that everyone should consider, everyone should think about. I said at the beginning that probably everyone who has ever lived has thought about life after death. Everyone who's ever lived has thought about what happens after you die. But the truth of the matter is, people don't take that question seriously enough. Many people assume that because they were alive on this earth, that they'll be there in the age to come. They assume that, sort of like the Sadducees, that if there is life after death, it'll be a lot like life is today. It'll just kind of be a resumption of the life that they have now. But Jesus says, there are only some who are going to participate in the resurrection in its best sense. There are only some who are going to be worthy to use his words, are participating in the age to come. And so life after death is substantially different than this life is. Now, that's a concerning thought. But Jesus moves from that concerning thought to a more comforting thought. And in verse 36, he tells us something else about life after death when he says this. Life after death is better than this life is. Not everyone will make it into the kingdom of God. Not everyone will experience life after death in the way that the Word of God uh, promises in a good sense. But those who do will find a life that's much better than the life that we have today. Look at verse 36. Jesus says, And they can no longer die, for they are like the angels. They are God's children, since they are children of the resurrection. In these few words, Jesus describes for us a little bit about what the afterlife is like. And he tells us that while we may mourn the fact that we won't be connected to our spouse in the same way that we are in this life, and while we may think and look at our lives now and long for a resumption of our marriage, but with both of us being perfect... Jesus is saying, no, that's not going to be the way it is. But that doesn't mean you're going to miss being married. He says the life that comes is actually going to be so much better than the life you have today. Notice what Jesus says again in verse 36. He says, and they can no longer die. One way that the life after death is better than this life is that those who are raised from the dead cannot die in the age to come. And that ought to be a very comforting thought to anyone who has faith in Jesus Christ. Our faith in Christ gives us a lot of hope in the face of death. It gives us comfort that God will be waiting for us and the forgiveness that he has promised to us in this life will be granted to us at the day of judgment, at the day of resurrection, and that we will be welcomed eternally into his perfect kingdom, into his perfect heaven. 
But when Jesus says in verse 36 that they can no longer die, he's trying to emphasize to us how much better the eternal state is, the age to come will be, the life after death that he offers and promises will be, than the life that we have now. And let's take a moment and think about this. One of the most precious things that I do as a pastor is is help people, work with people when someone that they love dies. It's a bittersweet thing for me because death stinks. God did not create us to die. Death is the consequence of sin, and that's why it hurts so much. For anyone who loses someone that they love in death, And that's why it causes so much fear for anyone who is thinking about and facing even the prospect of their own death. It's so, death is such a fearful thing and it's such a sad thing because it is not part of God's original plan. It is the consequence. It is the judgment that God handed down to all of humanity because all of humanity have sinned against him. As the scripture says, the wages of sin is death. We participate in death because we are sinners. But death was not part of God's original plan for us. And when I talk to people who have lost someone in death, when I try to help them through that process, when I try to when I when I'm involved in doing a funeral for someone who died, let me just tell you it is a traumatic experience. Often when someone dies, there are only a few days between that person's death and their burial. It happens really fast. And in those few days, there are so many decisions that have to be made. A decision about when the funeral will be and what kind of uh, burial that person will have. A decision about where that person will be buried and what will happen at their funeral. Where will the funeral be? And Who's going to be involved in it? Will there be music? Will there be speaking? What's going to happen in all of this? And so think about the, one of the worst days of your life that someone you love dies, your spouse or your parent. Not only are you mourning the loss of that person and wondering, even if you know the scriptures, you're still wondering what, where, you know, what's going on with them right now. Now, think about all of that going on, and in the midst of that, you have to make all kinds of decisions, and they have to be made fast. Part of my work in the ministry is to help shepherd people through that process. And in a lot of ways, people are sad, of course, during those days, but I've also noticed that many people, the the full extent of the sorrow doesn't hit them until it's all over, until all the decisions are made, and the person who died has been buried, and Then all of a sudden, they go back to their life, but the person they shared life with, who was a part of their life for many years, if it's a parent for all of their years, that person's not around anymore. All of the routines that they have established with that person are gone. All of the expectations that their life was built around are missing. Death is a horrible experience, even if you... Even if you lose someone who is in Christ and you know they're with him and you know they're safe forever, the loss that you experience in your life is a horrifically terrible thing. And so when Jesus says in verse 36, and they can no longer die, that's a beautiful promise. And 
that the pain of separation that death brings into your life and the fear about your own death, will it be painful? And what will the, the, the first moments after you die be like? All of that is no longer a factor in eternity. Jesus is saying the life that happens after death is so much better than this life. And one of the big reasons why is that death no longer exists. The scripture says that the last enemy to be destroyed is death. And this is what Jesus will do on the day of the resurrection. Just as he defeated death inaugurally, in a sense, with his own resurrection, so the promise for us as Christians, is that when we are raised to eternal life, when our bodies come out of the grave and we receive the eternal life that Jesus promises, we won't have to worry about death anymore. We won't have to worry about the separation that comes when you lose a spouse or a child or a parent or any other kind of loved one. Death is no longer an issue in the age to come. So that's one reason why life after death is better than this life. But there's more to it than that. There's there's even a greater promise. It's not just the promise that your life will no longer be interrupted and disrupted by death, but there's so much more to it. Verse 36 goes on to say this, For they are like the angels. They are God's children, since they are children of the resurrection. By the way, the Sadducees not only didn't believe in the resurrection, they didn't believe in angels either. And so Jesus, bringing up angels here, was on purpose. It was to kind of rub their faces in it a little bit and point out another way in which their their, uh, very constricted view of God's revelation, trying to constrict it down to the five books of Moses, gave them a very pinched and forced view of what life is like. Jesus says, when we are raised to eternal life, We won't die again because we are like angels. We are servants of God who are given the gift of immortality. But he goes on and says this in verse 36, they are God's children since they are children of the resurrection. What this is telling us is, and the reason why the age to come will be better than this life, is that in the age to come, not only will we never die, but we will spend every day, whatever a day means in eternity, we will spend every present moment in eternity under the fatherly love of God. No more sin to interrupt our fellowship with Him. No more discipline brought into our lives by His loving hand to correct us. We'll be the children of God. And when He says at the end of verse 36, because they are children of the resurrection, what He is saying is this, Because those who are there in the eternal state that Jesus is talking about, because they are those who, to use his words in verse 35, have been considered worthy of taking part in the age to come, because we have been raised to new life, and in that new life, the imputed righteousness of Christ, the righteousness that Jesus has given to us because we have faith in him, means we are are God's children. God, in a sense, is using sort of a rebirth process when he resurrects us from the dead. And for ages to come, for all eternity, 
We will live under the gracious hand of God with his daily provision for us, with the joy of serving him like the angels do. We're not going to be sitting around playing harps. We're going to be building a city together with God. We're going to be involved in work, but it won't have the, the drudgery and the difficulties that work in this life have. It'll be pure joy because it'll be done for the benefit of God the Father. It's an act of worship to God the Father. We'll spend every day humming and singing the praises of God in perfect harmony. And all of this under the fatherly love of God. Yes, it's true, we won't have the joys and comfort and excitement of marriage in the age to come. But you won't miss it. Because you'll be a child of God. And the joy that He offers you in that perfect state, the daily life of one of God's children in eternity is going to be so much better than the best day of your life on this earth. That is the promise that Jesus makes. Life after death is better than this life is. And this is the promise that Christ makes to all who come to him by faith, to all, to all who receive him as king, to all who have experienced the forgiveness of sins that he paid for in his death on the cross. Jesus says, here's what life after death will look for, like for you. It's better than you can possibly imagine. Now, Jesus isn't done here because he's got more to say. He wants to use this opportunity to tweak the Sadducees a bit, but also to really put in their faces how much unbelief they really have. And so as Jesus explained clearly about the reality of life after death, he not only tells us that life after death is substantially different and that it's going to be better than this life, but he says this, it's scriptural. He tells us that life after death is scriptural, whether or not religious people believe it. Whether or not people who might call themselves Christians even believe in life after death, Jesus says it's scriptural. Even if they try to constrict the scriptures down to five books of Moses, Jesus says it's still a biblical thing. Notice what he says in verse 37. Jesus says, but in the account of the burning bush. Where do we find that? We find it in the book of Exodus. Why does Jesus say that? Because in his world there were no chapters and verses. All right, and so Jesus is pointing them to Scripture. He's pointing them to a Scripture that everyone knew well, especially them, because they only had five books to read. All right, if they read through the Bible in a year, they wouldn't have to read that much of it because they only believed in five books. And so people should have been very familiar with this story, and they certainly were. Jesus says in verse 37, But in the account of the burning bush, even Moses showed that the dead rise. He says, look at the small part of the scriptures that you acknowledge. It's true that Job talks about life after death, and it's true that Daniel talks about the resurrection from the dead, but the Sadducees would say, we don't accept those works as being biblical. And so Jesus says, well, look at the books of Moses and think about the implications of what Moses says. And so he goes to the scriptures and says this, to say this in verse 37. Even Moses showed that the dead rise, for he calls the Lord, the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. 
God does not, this is Moses recording what the Lord said at the burning bush. And the Lord did not say, I was the God of Abraham, and I was the God of Isaac, and I was the God of Jacob. He doesn't say that. He says, I am, the very name of God, Yahweh. I am the God of these people. And so Jesus pulls out the implication of that statement of God when he says in verse 38, he is not the God of the dead, but of the living. For to him, all are alive. What is Jesus saying? He's saying life after death is scriptural. Even if you don't accept all of scripture, which you should, it still doesn't take away the fact that life after death is a cardinal doctrine of knowing God. Because Jesus says, the very implication of God's revelation of himself, that he is the God of these dead people, not that he was the God of them, shows that in God's mind they are still alive. Verse 38, he is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for to him all are alive. And so here Jesus acknowledges that there is some kind of intermediate state between your death and your resurrection, that your life exists. It continues in a spiritual state until the day of the resurrection. For to God, all are alive. And Jesus says this is an implication of what God's word teaches. Even though the Sadducees did not want to accept all of God's revelation, they couldn't escape the clear implications of Scripture. Scripture teaches that there is something that happens to a person after this life is over. And so Jesus returns to, this, to the scriptures, the very scriptures that they brought him to. Remember they said, Moses said this. Jesus says, hey, yeah, you know what? Moses said something else too, and you ought to think about the implications of it. Now, this isn't really part of my message, but let me just throw this thought in there. Think about how tight the argument Jesus is making here is. He is pulling out of scripture the doctrine of the resurrection based on the tense of a verb in Moses' revelation. Because Moses says Moses recorded God as saying, I am the God, not I was the God, Jesus is saying, you can see the doctrine of, of, of God's resurrection is there. And this is why the inerrancy of Scripture and the inspiration of Scripture are so important and so essential to our faith. Everything God said in Scripture contributes to our knowledge of Him. So we need to take God's Word with great seriousness, just as Jesus Himself did. Jesus explained clearly about the reality of life after death. For Jesus, I mean, he, He's existed for all eternity, so He knew these things as facts. And so He explained to us the reality of life after death, telling us it's going to be very different from this life, but it's very real. In fact, it's better than the best day of your life on this earth. And so you should believe what the Scriptures teach about life after death and order your life accordingly. So the big idea for this message, the main thought that we should take away from it is this. Don't let skepticism and misunderstandings, that's what the Sadducees were all about. They misunderstood the nature of life after death and they were skeptical about it because... They didn't want to accept God's word. Don't let skepticism and misunderstandings keep you from the joy of eternal life with God after death. This is what happens to skeptics. They dismiss the word of God because they don't understand it. 
They can't square all of the implications of what they think it is to what they think should be true, and so they dismiss the all of it. Don't, don't do that. Don't be so foolish. It's to turn your back on what God's Word says, because if you do that, you will miss the reality of life after death. How can God raise the dead? It's because He's all-powerful, that's how. How can God take someone's body who's been buried for a thousand years and is completely disintegrated? How can God resurrect that? How can God take someone's ashes that are dumped out at sea and put them back together? How can He do that? Because He's all-powerful, that's how. The fact that we can come up with even very plausible scenarios that say there's no way you could put the, the atoms together, the bits that the person was back together. All of that ignores the fact that God is all-powerful. And when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, and when you say, I believe that in Him there is life after death, you may not understand all of the things that God is going to do in the resurrection of the dead, but you're saying, I'm putting my future, I'm putting my hope, I'm putting my faith in an all-powerful God, and I believe that He can raise the dead. And if you're not a Christian this morning, Maybe because you have skepticism about life after death. Maybe because there's really no way to prove life after death in the way outside of the scriptures, which should be taken as proof, but this is what people do, right? They want to say it's all about experience, and we can't experience life after death, so it must not be true. Put aside your skepticism and think about what Jesus has said here. An all-powerful God can raise the dead. So put your faith and trust in Him. Also, God is loving, so He is making sure that many people will live with Him eternally in the age to come. That's what Jesus is saying in verse 35 when He says, but those who are considered worthy of taking part in the age to come and in the resurrection. The point of our gospel, the point of the message of our faith is this. God wants a host of children with him in eternity. He could have relegated the entire human race to eternal death because all of us have sinned against him and none of us is truly worthy of ourselves in participating in either the resurrection from the dead or in the age to come. But even though we all deserve the wrath of God, the Bible says God is loving as a father. He wanted in eternity a kingdom populated with people, people that he loved so much that he died for. And if you let skepticism about the age to come, if you let skepticism about eternal life keep you from receiving Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, that means you will be raised not to life, but to second death. An eternity accursed from God and under His wrath forever. If you're not a Christian, let me urge you this morning to turn from your skepticism and unbelief and receive Jesus Christ. Because the promise that He makes is that when your life ends, you will receive a glorious welcome into the presence of God, not because of your good works, but because of God's love because of the redemption that he, that he secured for us 
through the death of Christ on the cross. Don't let skepticism and misunderstanding keep you from the joy of eternal life with God after death. 